Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey, everyone. This is Mark Treichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. I'm excited today to have Mike Macchiarola from Olden Lane. I'm on their website. I know them well, but I pulled up their website in preparation for today's show. And I love the new summary on the homepage, which says a unique investment bank dedicated to the goals of our credit union partners. His clients, and I know him better as Mike Mack. And Mike, I'm excited to have you here on the show. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be with you. Yeah, Mike, we're both pretty active on LinkedIn. And I saw you did a newsletter and a post on NCUA's annual report. And it's called Eight Takeaways from NCUA's Annual Report. And I thought it would be good to get you on here to talk through those eight. And I know from the world that we are all our journeys that we've taken to today. And I know that you have some real thoughts on annual reports and what they mean. It was kind of cool for me having been at NCUA to see your take on the annual report because it it gives me a little bit different perspective. But because my 33 years at NCUA, I looked at it through one lens. I'm looking at it through a different lens. And I really like the lens you looked at it through here. Yeah. So let's chat about the article, chat about annual reports and get started here. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thanks for having me. I know Joe Rogan was unavailable, so I had to settle for, for the Mark <laughs> you, Trichel you flying colors. lower on the, on the chain. That's right. So you bring up annual report market. It's interesting because for me, it really means two things. The first is it's a showpiece for the agency, right? You can just see, and you would appreciate this more than most, you can just see how it gets passed around. And there's plenty of folks who have input and have responsibility for a portion of this report, right? It hits all sectors, all divisions. It hits lots of personnel. It hits lots of the initiatives. And it's meant to be their summary piece of what they did in 22. And honestly, more important for me, where they're going in 23, right? Because if you can read it with a little bit of an eye, you can see from the tea leaves where they think the world is going to be in 23. And that's important when you're in the business that we're in, which is advising credit unions looking forward. No, you know, that's a great point. And a couple thoughts relative to my time at NCUA and not, I don't think a lot of people know this. Well, they know. So Todd Harper, the current chairman, he started at NCUA as a political appointee and staff member in the Office of Public and Congressional Affairs. He came over from He worked for Paul Sarbanes, and he's a communication guru. And so he came to raise the bar of NCUA's communications. And as part of that, he raised the bar on the annual report under Debbie Matz and then Rick Metzger and Mark McWaters, Rodney Hood. And now all those board members, he assisted in that regard. And now he is the chair, but he raised the bar. He got them applying for awards, winning awards. And it's a much better product these days. And it it hits the mark on the things that you just mentioned. And some of my favorite people over at NCUA play a big role in this. So uh, when I saw what you had to say relative to your take on it, you nailed it. And I thought it'd be kind of good to just walk through the individual items. So anything before we jump into the eight items you wanted to say? Yeah, I would say as a segue from that, 
another thematically that's important for us here at Olden Lane, where we've been beating the drum, if you really look at it and you look at the product and you judge it, there's a couple of things that jump out, most notably that the NCUA has been doing a fine job as regulator. I mean, they seem to be ahead of the curve. They're forward thinking, they're cooperative, they're supportive, they are accessible through this document. And if you read it the right way, I mean, certainly there's going to be plenty that us that are deep in the weeds in the industry can quibble with. But as an overall assertion, you have to say that it's the NCUA has been in front of a lot of things that, that are now going to be the challenges. But here's where the rubber meets the road, right? What we have in front of us is certainly going to be a challenging period of time. And this is when we see we're going to test the metal of the agency really interestingly in the next couple of months. Yeah. And I think you said it well. They've positioned well for this. They've got a lot of good guidance, a lot of good rules or scale back certain rules. But we're entering likely a recession. Are we in a recession? Will we be in a recession? The statistics might already say that, but it's going to be an interesting challenge. They've kind of been ahead of the curve. I think the question will ultimately be how prepared and are their staff as far as expertise because of turnover and different things because of the great resignation and the challenges agencies can have in that regard. So excellent point. So the first item that you had identified is, it bolded here is, it says, interestingly, despite ample discussion of risks, the NCUA did not mention the potential for rising rates to create losses in the available for sale portfolios of credit unions. What are your thoughts relative to that, Mike? Well, it's interesting. I mean, there's plenty of rate discussion and I don't want to short shrift them. But it seems to me that where the rates caught up with everybody is not exactly where they were looking, right? So traditionally, we all were in the position to understand that rates were going to rise. And I think everybody was looking at the pace of that rate rise and to understand whether they could work two sides of their book. Could they re-rate their loans fast enough to pick up? the cost of deposits that were going to hit them on the other side of the balance sheet. Well, while we were looking at that and we were talking so much about loan pricing, which frankly, honestly, the industry missed in Q3 and Q4 of 22, which we may get into, Right. what really got us more than anything else, I think, was the investment book. And what's interesting here is I just think you got to walk down memory lane a little bit and unpackage exactly why it happened. I think it's a little lazy, honestly to go after the signature banks of the world and the SVBs of the world and say, oh, they they didn't really understand the asset liability matching. I'm not sure it's that simple because what we have here is policy that is unlike any policy we've ever seen. So if you just go back and understand what happened, we begin all the way in the beginning of 2020, we get hit with COVID. We're told to go home for two weeks and hide under our desk. We're also hit with 150 basis points of cuts right out of the gate in March of 2020. And so what happens is everybody stays home and we get a lot of government stimulus onto the balance sheet of the credit union. We have anomalous inflows of stimulus, deposits balloon, and every credit union that we were talking to at the time asked the same question, how sticky are these deposits? And I want to be responsible with what I'm doing here because if they're going to leave, I don't want to get myself in trouble. We had that conversation over and over and over again in 2020 and honestly into 2021. But then you reached a point where folks said, I have a certain pain threshold. I can't hold these deposits on my balance sheet and earn nothing. And remember, you literally were earning nothing. Right. So folks went out and extended their investment mix 
and picked up duration. And they didn't necessarily do it as cowboys. I mean, they didn't get into crazy assets. We're talking about treasuries and agencies. I mean, we have a limited permissible investment universe to begin with. Right, exactly. But if you look at the numbers, in 2020, investments into the 10-year-plus bucket doubled across the industry. And in Q4 of 2020 to Q1 of 2022, those five quarters, the five to 10-year bucket doubled. So we have extension of duration in the investment books of these credit unions. Then what happens? We get the fastest rate hikes in history. Now, I went back and I looked at this. As I said to you before we started, Mark, I I don't think I've studied this hard since I was in uh, law school. (laughs) But I looked at the rate hikes. March of, of 2022, 25 basis points. May, 50 basis points. June, 75. July, 75. September, 75. November, 75. December, 50. Feb 23, 25, and March of this year, 25. All together, nine hikes in a year for 475 basis points. Now, I will argue that it is not the hike that we all knew was coming. It is the pace and the aggressive nature of that hike. And I'm not, it's way above my pay grade to say whether it's appropriate or not, but it is very lazy to say that folks who got caught whipsawed in that action because of two policy swings, the likes of which we've never seen in our history, weren't doing their job. Yes, I wish they were all hedged. Yes, I wish we didn't take losses like we did. But this was a massive move in two directions, one after the other. You, you could, was it Nick, who's the Black Swan author? Talib. Talib, yeah. Yes, Talib. 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 So you, you have the pandemic, which was, was a Black Swan event, right? And then you have the influx, the unprecedented level of government stimulus, which was a Black Swan responding to the Black Swan which triggered the next event of unprecedented rate hike. So to be hypercritical of those, like you said, sat on that money for the longest time, as long as they could. And then eventually they had to do something in the world that they'd been in for so many years would have shown that the range of things that they could do fell into reasonableness. And then boom, you get these rates going up. And like you said, the industry missed raising rates on loans. So they the loans took off on one side, they went long on the investments. So you see these two scenarios where there was too much liquidity and you immediately went to not enough liquidity, which I'd like to jump. You had number eight in your write-up was liquidity, but it's so closely tied to the available for sale and the lack of share growth topic and things like that. Let's kind of jump to that last one, take them out of order. And I'm trying to throw you off your game there so you pass the test. We'll go to number eight. And so I love the title of this. It's liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. And Mike, what I... What I say on the podcast here a lot is liquidity doesn't matter until it matters. And then it's the only thing that matters. Let's chat about liquidity. Look, I mean, unfortunately, there's not much to say here, right? Again, you got caught in a very difficult circumstance. And one of the things we keep an eye on here was just how much of the liquidity, the deposits that the industry was relying on were the cheapest deposits, were just on demand, right? They were paying literally nothing on those. And what's happening now is that portion of the deposit base had grown to its largest, I think it was its largest percentage ever of the overall deposit mix. So not only are deposits hard to come by, the internal mix at a credit union is becoming more expensive as well, as those on-demands now have a reason to shop. If you were telling me I can earn zero or 25 or 50, I'm going to be a certain level of stickiness. If you tell me now I can earn 5%, you better have a pretty compelling conviction for me to stay. 
Right. Well, and and one thing that the big bank failures alerted everybody to is maybe you were sitting on the sideline, not paying attention to what you could get. And you see that people start moving and you you have events and, and news stories that get you engaged and you go, holy cow, I didn't realize I could get those higher rates. One of the things I do is I look at my Schwab account and see what a 30 day CD is going for. You can buy big chunks or you can buy a thousand dollars, but you can get over 5% on a 30 day CD. And of course the Fed fund rates are pretty darn near that as well. Yeah. Interesting times on the liquidity piece and looking at what you have here as well as the asset quality. Uh, One of the things Todd Miller, who is part of my team talks about the liquidity issues will resolve themselves as long as your asset quality holds. Well, here's where it's interesting, right? Here's where, again, you don't want to be a policymaker because you've got a, a difficult choice. So what's interesting is they can step off of the pedal here and say, you know what, we'll deal with a little bit of inflation, but we'll give the banks or the credit unions a respite, right? So that they can breathe a little easier and we don't really push the pedal on, on the deposit side. The problem with that is then you put more inflation on the back of the consumer. And when you do that, It may be delayed, but it's likely going to express itself in higher delinquencies on the other big bucket of the assets of the credit union, which are its loans. Yes. And what worries me about that is, as I said earlier, I really honestly believe that Q3 and Q4 of 22 were a whole batch of mispriced loans that came to credit unions. And frankly, they were at the credit union when the credit union thought they were taking share. They were taking share from the bank, but it's because the bank had stepped away from the market. Yeah, And yeah. community banks were a little smarter and a little quicker to reprice or to exit. There's a lot of sorting that has to go on here. The credit box has to be redefined, and that's going to be a slowdown. At the same time, people are going to pull their sales in here and look for the price that they're being paid for their deposits. And so cost of funds is going higher. Just like you said with liquidity, what we tell customers, all the t- clients all the time, have as many available sources, test those sources, use those sources take it when you can get it. Now is not the time to be real stingy on price. It just no. Well said, well said. And on the inflation side, before our call, I was on the phone with one of my clients getting an update and on the West Coast, and they've been getting hit hard on the deposit side because of inflation. They've pinpointed it down to the fact that people are just spending more on a box of cereal. So instead of growing, that takes off again, that's going to have big ramifications. And and on the credit side, there's another podcast I started listening to. It's it's a guy who, he's an, an anonymous of a car dealership. And he reports on Twitter and on his podcast, the different banks that are getting out of floor planning auto loans and the layoffs that are happening in different banks that are cutting all their junior lenders on their car loans because there's a storm brewing there and is $50,000 Toyota Celica going to be $50,000 in a few months, right? And so then if you start having those challenges, what might that do for your liquidity and your overall operations? So yeah, I wouldn't want to be a policy maker right now that every lever they pull has consequences and unintended consequences. Yeah. And, and, and look, I mean, the credit union mix, right? It's going to be autos and mortgages. So you've got a batch of mortgages that you're holding that are struck with a three handle and have to run to term. And then you've got a bunch of autos that we can argue about where they were struck and that they're mispriced and that that whole capital intensive and credit intensive industry is going to come under some significant pressure if it hasn't already. And you're exactly right. I watched the same thing about the dealerships that are closing and the banks that are exiting the market. 
And to price that floor plan at the dealer is, is a capital intensive effort. And as people exit and as assets concentrate in larger banks, you're going to have issues and they're going to be geographic and they're going to be in places and times you might not see them coming. But the good news, Mark, I always have to find a silver lining. So here's the good news. The good news is that nothing brings clarity, clarity of thought that is, quite like a little existential risk. You will think very clearly when your back is up against the wall, right? You are no longer in the benign interest rate, benign market environment that some of us have enjoyed for the last five or 10 years, right? It is not going to be smooth sailing. We are going to have choppy seas. But this is where the bold and the well-oiled machine are going to be rewarded, right? And this is where there's going to be a great sorting. Those credit unions that have been doing their job, doing it consistently, understanding their risks, delivering for their members, growing but rationally, understanding the new buckets of loans into which they've been growing in the last several years, they're going to be rewarded. Those that have been a little bit lighter on risk, quicker to move to growth for growth's sake, without a true strategy, it's going to be exposed. Right. It's going to be exposed. Yeah. Like what's, what's the, well, it's Buffett. Yeah. It's yeah. Buffett. Right. Only it's when fire. the tide goes out, do we see who's swimming naked. That's exactly, exactly right. Exactly. And you, and you reminded me of one of my other favorite quotes, which is Napoleon Bonaparte And Napoleon allegedly said that hearing improves when the guillotine is near, you know, <laughs> scared straight. Fascinating. Now uh, let's see one of the other items in here. So, I'm going to jump around on one other one, the consolidations. Those that planned well are going to, things will be bountiful for. Those that didn't measure their risk so much are going to have some challenges. And you've got an item in here about consolidation. I'm not sure which item it is. might be the second to last one. But that's something that I think we're going to see potentially pick up because of where we're at economically. Any thoughts on the consolidation likely to continue? Number seven. Yeah, consolidation is going to be a little different than what folks are used to. This is going to be, here is where I think, not to do a commercial, but here is where good bankers or good advisors are going to be worth their weight in gold. Because I do not believe the next round of mergers are going to be as simple as the last round. I don't think it's going to be over coffee in the neighborhood and in the geography because one CEO was retiring and the other CEO knew him or her and said, hey, let's get together and we'll take your business out. Those transactional collegial mergers, they may still be there, but that's not where I'm interested. Where I'm interested is I think the geographic bounds are going to break down. They're not as important as they once were. And you've seen some of this, right? You saw there was an Illinois credit union for a Maine credit union. That deal did not work out. They broke it off. But that told you that geography doesn't matter as much. And that makes sense in the mobile environment and when customers are, are all about pricing and we've got understanding of how to manage risks and work from home, if you will. Very recently, credit union in Michigan go for bank in Florida. I think those are the types of things you're going to see. So people are going to do things more strategically to get their way into geographies that they desire, to get themselves balance sheets that they like from a liquidity standpoint, to get themselves business lines or talent that they admire from afar. And so I think the merger box is going to open up and it's going to be more about strategic mergers. I don't think 
credit unions to date have been as strategic as they could be. I mean, my version of a merger goes all the way back when they taught it, either law school or business school. And it was Goldman Sachs bankers come in and they show the Ford Motor Company on a model and, and a PowerPoint why they should buy Nissan, right? And it is driven by a bank and a bank's idea of why it makes sense for a credit union in this case. And then the credit union understands it and realizes that its choices are bigger than it might have realized. I think that's what's going to happen in, in the space. Well, and not only credit union to credit union, bank into credit union, those types of acquisitions where there might be a bank that, and you kind of touched on it, what's their asset mix, right? I'm 95% loaned out, 110% loaned out, and there's a bank that's available that's 50% loaned out. And oh, by the way, as a credit union, I could pay with cash as opposed to the guy down the street, the other banker who has to pay with stock and maybe the stock is deflated and it's not a good time. So there could be some acquisitions coming up in that vein as well. And the other thing that, as you said, that dawned on me, tied to SVB and Signature Bank and other things, one of the articles I read tied to that talked about how there's so few banks in many countries, how there's so few banks in Canada, but we still have almost 5,000 banks here and 5,000 credit unions. We used to have many, many more. Part of that tied to the fact that you couldn't cross state lines if you were a state charter. So it was Illinois. Banks would be in Illinois. Illinois state charter credit unions would be Illinois. But not only do you see mergers of federal credit unions across the country, but you'll see neighboring states where mergers 10, 20, 15 years ago wouldn't have been approved, and and it might need the state regulator in both states' approval. It's now been an option for many, many years. So that geography is definitely expanding, along with field of memberships in both states and federals, whether it's underserved rules or just broad state rules. There's pl plenty of opportunities out there. And I like, you know, we're, we're going to give you an opportunity at the end for a commercial on how people can get in touch with you and how Old and Lane might be able to assist in, in some of these things. The other thing, just to piggyback on that, Mark, yeah. the holistic, what you've highlighted is the holistic approach, right? You have to understand field of membership. You have to understand low income. You have to understand underserved tracks. You have to be able to map. You have to be able to take all of that and project it on top of a financial model. So the bar for figuring these things out and optimizing them is higher than it's ever been. And I think you've got to put all those pieces into the recipe to get it right. You know, you're starting to see some of this honestly has dawned on us through some of the processes that have happened. Like, for example, the emergency capital investment program from Treasury. Right. It really forced people to marry up the concept of sub-debt, secondary capital, whatever we call it these days. Sure. With the concept delivering to MDIs or CDFIs. And because Treasury had a certain requirement, went and applied for that money, but then the, the NCUA had another set of requirements around sub-debt. You really had to have a full appreciation for not just fitting a single box, but fitting two boxes and then having the two boxes talk to each other. Those methods of mapping and projecting for social benefit or for low income or for minority status are also married with projecting share and deposit growth along with loan growth, you know, which is just organic. Well, and, and speaking of ESIP and that whole process, if I remember right, every one of your credit unions who applied was able to get either what they asked for or get a part of what they asked for. Do I have that right? Now you put the jinx on it because what you forget is that there's round two. Oh, round two. Still pending. I forgot about so, it. Yeah, in round one, all of our folks got what they asked for or a very significant amount. They're 
very significant amount. Everybody got more than the average award. As you know, there was incentive to ask for the moon, and some did and some got it, so God bless them. And if you think about it, really, honestly, when that started, some folks turned it down. And when that started, rates really were 500 basis points ago, basically. I'm sure there are a lot of people who turned it down that would love to have it now. But there was a round two, much smaller, happened at the end of last year when a lot of folks were were celebrating the holidays. Some of us were hard at work for clients, but we've got a few pending and we expect to hear that soon. I think the awards for that should come pretty shortly. Yeah, that part had slipped my mind. I'm, I'm glad you reminded me that's out there. Let me know when you hear on those. Jumping back on number two, although short on measurables, the agency remains committed to its virtual exam project. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting, right? This goes all the way back to 2017 when the board first approved the notion that they could do exam, if you will, at a distance, right? But the NCUA really didn't exactly have their arms around how this would happen. In the interim, of course, they probably had to figure much of it out on the fly because (laughs) whether you like it or not, you were doing exams from a distance because of COVID. Here, I think it leaves me with a question, which is how far down the road are we? Shouldn't we have a sense of exactly what's possible here? Because we've been tinkering with this very practically since COVID. I do like the effort. I do think it makes sense. I mean, you hear plenty from credit unions that the examiners are in here. They're in here too often. They take up too much of my resource. So if we can find a, or an arm's length agreement where you share enough information and you, with enough frequency that the, the examiner doesn't have to bother you as often, as long as it works for them and it makes sense in terms of the supervision that they need to do this could be a win-win. Yeah, I agree with a few caveats. I think you summarized it well. Back in 2017, I was there as executive director. It was board member Mark McWaters, who was the chair at the time, who got us going down this direction. There were some debates within the office. There were the trade groups that were hearing what you said about your clients is, hey, we'd like to have NCUA not here as much. And so the, the virtual exam idea was born. I can tell you when at the agency, when people were joking about it, they pictured Tom Cruise in the movie Minority Report with the goggles that you would put on that would, <laughs> which would predict the future on who was going to do wrong, right? And the people that weren't so supportive of the virtual exam would look in that direction. And then lo and behold, NCUA's union and its staff didn't really want Some people wanted to work off-site, some people didn't want to work off-site, and there was this whole union issue, and then boom, COVID hit, and no one was going on-site. And you nailed it in that regard. It's like, okay, now we got to see what we can do, and we're going to do it all, so we got to do it all. But they learned a lot in that process. Now, they'll never be fully virtual because, and I say this uh, occasionally on here, is you know when you're driving down the road at 75 and you're supposed to be going 60 and you see the police car... And then your spouse next to you looks over and said, there's nobody in it, right? It's the empty police car. The fact that they show up keeps people honest and there's stats that prove it. So there'll be some level of on-site that always happens. But one of the blessings, if there are, if you can say anything of the pandemic was a blessing, is it it made NCUA and made everybody realize what can you do off-site, what can you do on-site? And in the end, that's a better thing. So two things occur to me. I think the version of the police car. If I remember right now, I'm going to show off my philosophical law uh, thing here. I think it's Jeremy Bentham. I think it's the polyopticon or the panopticon. They put the guy who's looking at the prison in the middle of the prison so that he can see out on all sides, but the prisoners couldn't see in. 
So they felt like they were always being watched and their, uh, their behavior would increase accordingly. Oh man. I, I think so that's what, Jeremy Bentham. Bentham, B-E-N-T-H-A-M. Okay. Yeah, I, I could be wrong, but that's what I think. And then the other thing that occurs to me is this virtual exam thing is going to go away anyway, because at the rate we're going by about 2025, we can just type in, hey, how's Credit Union ABC doing into chat GPT and we'll be all set. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started on chat GPT. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, boy, oh boy. Yeah, a lot of changes coming. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right. The next one on uh, 2022 is a busy year for regulatory updates. You talked a little bit about how NCUA was ahead of the curve. Anything on the busy year they had on regulatory updates that you want to highlight? Succession planning rule. Look, I think it makes sense, right? Any good governance system would have that. It makes sense for the board to understand the succession within a credit union and good for the agency for pushing that. Earnings retention waivers for COVID just shows their flexibility and their willingness to work with the industry when some of these folks were impaired. The cyber incident notification, I think it's reasonable for folks to have to be able to sort of tell, uh, you know, self-report within 72 hours. Although I'll note there's a little bit of a, of a friction with current CFPB. I don't know if you've been following that. They had their own leak and they haven't self-reported the extent of it and where it was. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, that's a, I think that ironic. Yes, yes. And then member expulsion rule, good, as long as it's not too onerous. I mean, we have to figure a way to kick a member out. You know, it should be fair, but it shouldn't be crazy onerous on a, on a credit union. Um, the financial innovation release, I get it. Again, forward-looking, I think, makes sense, shows uh, flexibility. Again, principles-based, right? They're letting you make your own bet as long as you don't go out of uh, some of the guardrails. And then I would say for 2022, although it's really, in my mind, a 2021 effort, the big one is the sub-debt rule. You're seeing a lot more interest. Obviously, you know, we're very involved in that world, but I think it's, we can quibble about individual pieces of it. And, and certainly I do from time to time when I run into people from the agency. But overall, look, they understood that that is an important piece of the capital structure or can be for certain folks in certain situations. I do think it's going to take a much more pronounced role. I think right now we're in the phase one, which is about liquidity and triage and finding where the new equilibrium is. But I think after that, when folks look in the mirror, they're going to realize, man, I want to really fortify my capital structure. One of the ways to do it, you know, as long as you're responsible with it, is certainly going to be sub-debt. And those rules are, they're easy to follow. You can understand them. I mean, there are places, again, where I would would argue at the margins, but it makes sense. So job well done. And I know it was a big lift. Well, so first, let me say on succession planning, I'm not a fan of a rule. I think guidance is where they should go. And I think that might be where they end up. I did a, uh, a blog and or a podcast where I said 10 reasons why they should not make it a rule, but guidance is more nimble is one of the reasons and it, it can be more easily changed. But uh, there is an issue of succession. Who's going to take over credit unions? Uh, so at least elevating the topic is important. But on the whole sub-debt issue, Olden, that's a big part of what Olden Lane has been involved with recently, not only the ESIP money, and I don't know, several of the biggest deals, Olden Lane played a big role in, if I'm not mistaken, Mike. You want to chat about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I remember when we started, we started by just placing some of this debt very early, at very much at the end of 2017. And those those transactions, if I remember them right, I think it was a $10 million piece and a $12 million piece. So 
like $20 million or $22 million of, of paper, which at the time was significant because the overall market at the end of 2017 was about 120 or $30 million outstanding. Since that time, the market is now north of $3 billion. Roughly $2 billion of that is ESIP related. So it's government money that came into about 90 credit unions through the Treasuries program. But the balance of it, you know, a billion or so, has been done in the private market. Like you said, Olden Lane's been at the tip of that effort. We've been fortunate to work with some of the largest, as you said, some of the more complex and some of the cutting edge. Some of the things we did, and not to take up too much time with a commercial, we raised $200 million for Vistar at the beginning of 2022. We raised $100 million in February of this year for Green State. That's the first transaction that was ever wrapped, the first credit union subdebt transaction wrapped in an ESG bond. So it was in a social bond wrapper. It was rated by KBRA for its investment rating, but it was also rated by S&P for its ESG bona fides. And that allowed us to have a broader distribution. That's the first deal that I'm aware of, of any size that was more than 50% taken up by non-depository institutions. Some of that is attributable to the wrapper, certainly. That's exciting. Uh, We just did in March of this year, right after Signature Bank blew up, and I still, I'm not sure how it got done, but it was some, you know, it it just happened to be a great credit union. It is formerly Alaska USA, that's now Global Credit Union, placed $110 million in March into a wild storm right after SVB and Signature were kind of failing. Yeah, so those three big items, those three big ticket items were, are what, 13, 14% of the entire pool that's out there and a bigger portion if you discount ESIP. I got it right. Yes. Yeah, that's, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's great. But, you know, at the same time, we're just as proud, honestly, of when we raised our first transaction was $150,000. And honestly, it's almost the same amount of work. It can be harder in many cases for the smaller folks because they just don't have as much material policy. And it's, you know, you have to do a little bit more work even, but it's the same package. It's the same model. It's the same kind of understanding of what they're trying to do with the money and how they cycle it into their business and use it. Most instances for growth, sometimes for triage or to repair a hiccup. And then sometimes, honestly, for acquisition capital, because if you buy a bank in particular or bank branches, it can be dilutive. So oftentimes this capital can plug that hole or make that deal make a lot more sense. You got it. And one of your partners there at Olden Lane, Dan Prezioso, said a lot of these things at board member Rodney Hood's Capital Markets Symposium a week or two ago. I was fortunate enough to be that, and that was a pretty cool event. And yeah, exciting times on that front. You guys are doing great on that. Supervisory compliance is likely to increase. A little thought on that. Anything you'd like to expand on there, Mike? Yeah, I think this is macro-driven. I think we're going to see a little bit of transition here from the agency is going to be a little less focused on rulemaking or the go forward, and they're going to be a little more hyper-focused on the health of the underlying credit unions they supervise or examine. And that is going to be, in my mind, largely driven by the environment, right? You have to play the hand you're dealt, and there are going to be some folks who are going to have some situations this year. It's only when you've got volatility that you start to really drill into the books and some of the things that have been have not been done well get exposed. So I think you'll see enforcement. I think the leash of the agency will be a little a little shorter. I think they'll uh, shoot first and ask questions later in a certain sense to try and get in front of things before they cascade or escalate. It makes sense. That's their job. 
Well, and, and they even is not in any of the manuals, but it's, you know, it's a wake up call letter of understanding. And most of the instances when we're talking, when NCUA is talking about enforcement actions, it means a letter of understanding and agreement, which is where they sit down with the board and says, okay, you agree these are problems. You agree to fix them. We're going to make you sign it. We're going to sign it. And then it gets, it gets ratcheted up from there. They do cease and desist orders, conservatorships. Those are relatively rare in most instances, but I agree. Letter of understandings are going to go up. I'm already seeing. So one of the things that I watch closely at NCUA is every quarter, and it'll be coming up again in May if I have my months right, they do the insurance fund report. And that's really the only glimpse publicly where they see where camel codes are going. That's my Super Bowl every quarter is where did camel codes go? And for the last four quarters, three quarters, they've doubled in the large institutions. I look at the over 500 million and the over billion basket, and I'm seeing that with some of my clients. And I'm expecting in May, we're going to see numbers um, that are even higher on camel code threes and fours in larger situations. And, And that might trigger an enforcement action. It might not trigger an enforcement action. It certainly triggers document resolutions and NCUA sticking around a little bit more been seeing that quite frequently in the clients over the last year. So it's going to be interesting where that goes, but I think you're spot on. Enforcement actions will be increasing. Well, you sit there and watch camel ratings. I'll tell you what I watch. And we're getting there because it's about four days away from the deadline. I watch the 5300s and we're actually, it's gotten to the point where I watch them so aggressively that we go to the 5300 on the Research Credit Union page before it lands in Callahan because we just can't wait right? But we're looking to see what happened to this health to maturity bucket and how pronounced those losses are. What happened to this AFS bucket and how pronounced those losses are. I want to see if if AFS is starting to move into HTM, which would not be a good thing because it's not probably appropriate. (laughs) I also want to understand the magnitude of these losses. Now, they should come in because the mark at March 31st should be a good mark relative to last year's year end. It's since gone out, right? Rates have risen again. But the March 31 should be a relief, and hopefully March 31 is a relief. The other thing I would say there is I'd love to see credit unions, because of the inverted yield curve, that are taking advantage of trying to move in on duration, if they can, with their investments, right? Can you sell out of a seven-year piece into a three-year piece, actually pick up yield, and take your duration in? I want to see if some of that's starting to sort itself out, and hopefully people are doing that. So I want to see if there's movement there. But it is funny, as as you sit here and watch camel ratings, I'm sitting here and watching the AFS bucket, and I'm also watching delinquencies. I looked this morning on Callahan, which is very funny, and I, I commented to Eli, who works across from me, 61 basis points were the Q4 delinquencies across the industry. That's three quarters in a row of expansion. Right now, as of this morning, with about 1,600 folks reporting in Callahan, which is roughly a third, it's hanging at 37 basis points. I asked Eli if it was going to go higher or lower, and he just looked at me and laughed. It just tells you that the folks who are having trouble are going to be at the back end of this quarter's reporting <laughs> period. And it, it, there's no way it's below 61. It's going to come in above 61 for the quarter. We're going to see the laggards come in now at the last you know, four or five days. Interesting. Eli's from Princeton that I met down in New York City. Is that right? I got there. Yes, Yes, sir. Say hi to him. Will do. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Well, you know, and I like Callahan. I bit the bullet and subscribed to Callahan, you know, started by former NCUA board chairman Edgar Callahan back in the day. And 
it's easier to massage that data sometimes than it is to get the free data from NCUA. But sometimes you can get you know, that report off of NCUA as quickly like, like you're doing it. I did some analysis along who does have the big hold of maturity losses. And oh, by the way, if you look at the right accounts, which losses aren't being aren't showing up in gap that was interesting that's all i'll say that was an interesting exercise the other thing that's unfortunate is it's hard to track it across time because of what happened with the with the reporting what is it beginning of last year yeah the changes in the 5300 now we're really geeking it up mark (laughs) it's like a universe of probably six people to play in those weeds but you just reminded me of sitting in my the office of the executive director and the E&I director came up and said, we're changing these 57 fields or we want to change these 57 fields in the 5300 report. And I got their briefing. And then next day I had a briefing at the office of the chief accountant, the office of the chief economist who said, they're changing all the fields. I can't compare anything anymore. You got to stop this. And they both made perfect sense. But we ended up making a lot of changes and it does create some backward looking challenges. But yeah, exciting times. So low income. I think we're on our last item from your write up. The low income designated credit union should continue to grow. What are your thoughts relative to that, Mike? So low income is really important. And, and any credit union that doesn't have a sense of where they stand relative to the low income criteria really has to do the work and understand it. And it's not hard. It's just taking the ARIES file members and, and running it across a geocode. And you can do it across a commercial geocode, or you can reach out to, to any of the folks who do it. And there are plenty of folks who do it in the space and do it well. The issue here is the LICU status gets you certain regulatory reliefs that is, what is the plural of relief? Is it reliefs? Certain regulatory relief? All right, we'll go with relief. Go with regulatory that. relief, relief. plural. <laughs> but you can apply for certain grants. You can take your non-member deposits from any source instead of just from public agencies and other credit unions. You can apply for subordinated debt and have it count towards your net worth, which is important. And then you can take, you get a lift on the limitation on member business loans, which can be important. So all of those things, if you can get them, are worthwhile or can be worthwhile at any moment in time. And when we track the Laiku number, I believe when I started in this business 2017, 2018, really digging into credit unions, I want to say it was about 35% of the universe was Laiku. Now it is north of 50. By the last numbers, I think it's about 2,627 of the 4,863 credit unions, roughly 54% are low income and growing. And some of it is growing because folks are getting wise and are applying. And some of it is growing, honestly, through consolidation because non-Likus are merging into Likus. That's what I was going to, yeah, I was, if you didn't say that, that's what I was going to say is those tools that you get because you're a Likus you, increases your likelihood of, of long-term survival uh, So as it would be. So, yes. And again, I'll give a plug to the agency. They added active duty military to the low income bucket. And that was done through, I think, the chief economist's office and that enables certain credit unions to pick up certain membership and get over the level, which is great. Because again, to the extent these credit unions can have wider toolbox, especially in the macro environment that we're coming into, good for them. And they should do it and they should avail themselves of everything they can get. A lot of good lobbying happened in the industry to get that change as recommended by the Office of the Chief Economist. That was a good move adding a no brainer, but that was an example of People out walking the walk and understanding credit unions, communicating to NAFQ and CUNA and 
and just beating that drum until NCUA figured out a way to make it work. It's a no-brainer, and it, it does help qualify, but they're certainly part of the underserved. So, well, Mike, this has been fun. If someone, if one of my listeners or 10 of my listeners would like to reach out and chat with you or someone at Olden Lane, what's the best way for them to reach you? We have a website. It's www.oldenlane.com. There's a contact uh, form down the bottom that goes to an address called info at oldenlane.com. And that will go to my inbox and I think four other folks. So if you reach out through that, that's the best way. We'll field questions where, you know, don't worry, the taxi cab meter doesn't start running or anything like that. We try to do our part for the industry and really try to be a thought leader and as helpful as we can across everybody from small to large. So if we can be helpful in any way, please, anybody out there, don't hesitate. Yeah, and I can just reiterate that. We chat a lot. We have a lot of similar clients. And what Mike said is true. There's a lot of ways they can assist. Make sure you reach out if trigger something discussed here triggered the desire to do so. I highly encourage you to do that. All right, Mike, let's put a wrap on this one. I really appreciate your time today. Mark, it's been great. It's been a pleasure as always to speak with you. And I thank you, my friend. You got it. And listeners, I want to thank you for listening to this episode with Flying Colors. This is Mark Treichel signing off. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 